0: To Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Professor Larry Jacobs. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's program, The Strength and Curse of Community Organizing. Our guests today are Marshall Ganz, who is a famed community organizer, worked in the civil rights movement during the 1960s, worked with Cesar Chavez during the farm workers organizing in the 1970s um, and has worked in um, election campaigns as well. He's currently a senior uh, fellow at the, or senior, excuse me, a senior lecturer in leadership organizing and civil society at Harvard University's Kennedy School of um, Public Affairs. Also joining us is Damon Schulholm, who is a leader in Twin Cities nonprofit uh, organizing. He is currently the uh, grant-making director for the Bush Fellowship Program at the Bush Foundation. Prior to that, he worked at the Wilder Foundation running its James uh, Shannon Leadership Program and is well known for facilitating the diversity, equity, and inclusion collaborative here in the Twin Cities. We're gonna start with Marshall and then we'll bring in uh, Damon in a second. Um, Marshall, you've had this incredible uh, history of uh, accomplishment as a community organizing. You know, I went through it, but you know, the work you did in the 60s, the civil rights movement, um, the Freedom Summer, working with the uh, Student uh, Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or SNCC um, and based in Mississippi, are remarkable, and then you added it with the work you did with Cesar Chavez and many organizations since. Is it the case that this is a kind of a golden age of community organizing? We've seen Black Lives Matter um, mobilize millions of people um, across racial lines to protest uh, violence by police and racial inequalities.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting to think of the term golden age uh, as applied to this. You know, uh, Tom, Tom Hayden once said that change is slow, except when it's fast. And we are in a fast moment now. And uh, the fluidity, uh, the, the sort of fragility of so much right now. And so, yeah, there are people responding to it, struggling with it, reacting to it, uh, and trying to deal with it. Um, the question is, how that energy can turn into uh, real shifts in power. Um, and you know, today, one of the important distinctions is between mobilizing and organizing. Uh, mobilizing as turning out folks for a rally, or an event. Um, uh, organizing as building the, 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 st- the structure of leadership, of organization, to be able to make decisions, to be able to uh, develop, uh, organize constituencies that then choose mobilizing as different tactics at different times. And the social media has facilitated the ease of mobilization because it reduced the cost radically. Uh, But power is built through commitment of people to each other uh, and to building collective capacity. Um, That's the whole idea of sort of of organizing a democracy is that through collective uh, effort, we are able to accomplish things that we can not as individuals that reflect our shared interests, not simply our individual interests. And so I think we're up against um, some real challenging elements of activity that
1: may not be creating the
0: kind of power shift that is needed.
1: So that's a kind of of a tepid response or a nuanced response to what's happening, but let's just dig deeper. And for folks who may not be as deep as you are um, in this world, let's put some names on it. So an example of mobilizing might be obviously an election campaign where you see, you know, and this has been a criticism of the Democratic Party among those in the Latino community. The Democrats show up, you know, before an election and they disappear um, or MoveOn.org. That's been that was very successful in exploiting uh, the social media world to raise a lot of money. But um, is that the kind of thing you're 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 thinking about? <clears throat> about mobilizing is insufficient? You know, in, in some ways, <clears throat> excuse me, in some ways, maybe the clearest example,
0: uh, Wael Ghonim was here with us for a while, who was the Google guy in Tahrir Square, uh, and who they did a remarkable job of mobilizing, of turning out people, uh, turning out people that they were able to bring down Mubarak, but they didn't build organization. And as a consequence, the folks with the organization walked away with the goodies. Uh, namely the Muslim brothers in that case, and then ultimately the military. Uh, Here, yeah, I mean, I think electoral campaigns, well, uh, we were talking a bit earlier, I mean, there's been kind of a radical shift in the electoral means of production from organizing to marketing, really. And so uh, a version of marketing door to door is mobilizing. It's just like sending people out, turning people out for stuff. It's like, it's like drawing people's resources and refocusing somewhere without actually engaging the people with each other in, in, a, in, a, in a relationship of agency, in a relationship of ownership. So it winds up like mobilizing resources as opposed to organizing people. And,
1: and that's a, uh, a, a big distinction uh, and yeah. So when you're talking about organizing, you just drawing on your own experience, you're thinking about uh, the work that was done in the South during the civil rights movement in which folks who had been um, you know, the target of vicious racism, um, African-Americans were brought into a relationship with each other. They stood together, they, they, they came to understand themselves as a group, as a collective. Is that what you have in mind? Well,
0: yes, because the theory of change is based in uh, building a powerful constituency. In other words, that, that numbers can matter, that people can matter, uh, and that collective effort. So you build a powerful constituency. That's how you begin to shift power. Uh, let's say the Montgomery bus boycott, if it had been won by a lawsuit, uh, the bus might, buses might have been desegregated, but power wouldn't have shifted. The fact it was won through a boycott meant that that whole community became empowered, individuals in it, the whole community, and it created a power shift to then go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So organizing is about building power and sustained power, not just momentary transactional event. Um, it, 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 there's a place for both. I, I you know, don't want to say that, but that's, and I'm thinking about labor organizing has always been like that. A lot of the community organizing uh, builds sustained uh, power, like groups like uh, Isaiah or Lucha or organizations like that. Uh, Politics, you know, there, I don't know, there never really was this golden age, but it was much more dependent on organizing people in a sustained way, whether it was through a political machine or a political party. And then it shifted to where it's now really monetized and it's all about marketing to individuals. And what you described people show up for the election, then they're gone. Um, Well, the candidates don't have an interest in sustaining. A, a, in a sort of an ongoing source of accountability, even if it could be a source of power. Uh, I think that's one of the big, big challenges. I know in the Obama effort, we invested a lot in building that organization, but it was just sort of put on ice uh, after the election. And I think that, you know, I think that was a big
1: loss. You have talked about idealized individual autonomy on the left. <laughs> and um and I think that's related to what we're talking about here in terms of organizing, because there's a, as I read what you've written and listened to, um, a suspicion about structure.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Talk a little bit about structure. Why is that such a hangup point for, for the left? It's, it's
0: a good question. And I think it comes from different directions. The classic in this area was written by Joe Freeman, the feminist sociologist in 1972. And it was called The Tyranny of Structurelessness. And what she was writing about was when when folks get together to try to do something together, but view structure as problematic. No, no, we don't need rules. No, we don't need all that. Um, Then what happens is structure gets formed, but informally, not formally. And so then we sit around and say, well, who decided that? And then the factions develop because it's not transparent, it's all off the books, and it becomes paralyzing. You know, structure, I mean, just the word comes from the Latin, you know, construct to build. Structure is about building something. And when you get right down to it, it's simply the, the commitments we make to each other about how we're gonna work together uh, if we're going to do collective work. And and so this, this resistance to structure is a resistance to building of collective capacity because structure enables coordination. Now, structures can be imposed upon us, you know, which we don't like uh, because they're coming from the top down, but then we have to be responsible for building our own structures so that we can coordinate, make decisions, strategize, hold one another accountable. And I think in a way, the sort of elementary piece, the core piece, Albert Hirschman's book Exit Voice and Loyalty is such a helpful way of looking at this, that you can deal with system dysfunction through exiting, which is what markets do, or through the exercise of voice in return for loyalty. I join, I become a member, I get voice, but then I need to also respect the decisions that are made through the structures that I've agreed to. Uh, otherwise you, you and, and it's that trade off. I think people tend to think of it, I'm giving up my autonomy, when in reality, you're investing an element of your individual agency in the construction of collective agency. And that's how you can build power. So it's not either or, it's both and. And, you know, going back to de Tocqueville, that was his whole argument about how to get beyond narrow self-interest to what he called enlightened self-interest, or or self-interest probably understood. It was through the process of association with others and commitment to work with others. And when that piece is not there, we're not learning, we're not developing the affective bonds, and we're not building the power that we need to do. One of my bugaboos, and I'm sure some folks are gonna disagree with this, uh, is I think consensus is highly problematic uh, as a decision-making process because it marginalizes dissent. It marginalizes difference when difference and dissent is critical for a healthy democratic process. I mean, uh, because it it sort of forces things into kind of a group thing uh, deal. Uh, And that's what I mean by my individual autonomy is the most important thing in the world. And so if I don't agree, I can stop the whole thing from happening. I mean, I can understand that in the early days of SNCC, when people were risking their lives together, and made those decisions together. Yeah, you know, but if it's going to be uh, engage a lot of people in an ongoing process of learning and change and so forth, one person. I mean, look at Joe Manchin. Is that democratic? Not much. Not from my perspective. And uh, it's not that different,
1: actually. Um, this is very good. I want to bring in uh, Damon Showham in a second, but um, let me just ask you this question because I think it's related there is a, um, a, a tremendous emphasis on the importance of the identity of BIPOC, um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And I'm curious, given the movements you've been part of, whether you see that as intention with the idea of building coalitions across racial lines, across class lines.
0: Well, you yeah. like easy questions, right? This is like like uh, no problem. No, it's it's clearly it's one of the major challenges we face right now, is how to function uh, with a shared. How can I say a shared? I think any commitment to democracy requires a commitment to diversity. And now the question is: Does different is difference then coupled with difference in power as well? Uh, and then when difference becomes the basis for stratification, and certainly race has been that in this country since before it's bounding, there's no founding. Pre- uh, gender has also been significant. Uh, you know, uh, work I do in other parts of the world, religion is pretty, pretty powerful divider in India uh, right now, uh, with the Modi regime there. Uh, language in Canada was a whole deal between French and English. Now, I'm not equating I'm just saying that we, when we work with people other than like us, then we have the work of figuring out what is our common ground. And I think it lies not in sort of abstract ideas, but in our shared humanity. And I think to the extent that we are able to be present to one another as human beings in, in the most basic ways, but on an equal basis, because if it's not equal, then it doesn't work. And, you know, it's like inviting, oh, we're gonna invite uh, all the, we're gonna invite poor folks into the room with the, you know, masters of uh, industry. Uh, and we're gonna all talk together and we're gonna come up with our shared whatever. I mean, it's it's foolishness because the power outside just reproduces itself inside. And so the prior work is often for communities to build the power they need in order to engage with the rest on equal or even greater than equal basis. That often requires boundaries that, um, that are necessarily exclusive. Uh, because uh, I, I often use the example Harvey Milk in San Francisco, when, when they build that community, they build, they bound it as a community which then could develop its own power and its agency to engage with the other powerful institutions. So I I think this is part of that struggle, uh, because uh, inequality really makes uh, dialogue difficult. I mean, Israel-Palestine is another example. Not going to have dialogue with all that power inequality, and so so they're both involved. And I and you know it's not a, a neat process, uh, but I think the only way we get through it is to engage with it. I, I think withdrawal. Or dismissal uh, is the opposite because it involves a whole lot of learning, but it also involves figuring out how to balance power. I hope that's responsive. I, yeah, it is. It's a
1: it's, it's a very uh, nuanced, sophisticated answer to a, a question that was meant to throw you in the deep end. <laughs> All
0: right. No, I hope I'm still uh, still getting air. Yeah, you're doing great. Oh. Danielle uh, Allen has a recent book called uh, Difference Without Domination. It's an edited volume. It's really, I think, very helpful uh, in this area.
1: Damon Schoholm, I want to invite you to join us. Thank you for your patience. No, um, I'm I'm
2: deeply, deeply uh, enthralled by the conversation anyway. So I'll do my best. Don't throw me in the deep end, Larry, please. But, Somewhere in between.
1: <laughs> if you could help us um, to understand the situation now in the Twin Cities where there has been a lot of community organizing, there have been a lot of conversations in the community um, and, and across our communities uh, about a whole set of issues around uh, racial and economic disparities, around police conduct um, and more. And I'm wondering if you could just relate what you've been hearing from Marshall Gans, mm. what you're seeing, and I would start with the, the fundamental question which is are we looking at kind of this fundamental enduring organizing that Marshall has been referring to, or do you see it as a more of a short-term mobilizing around the elections that will be happening next week?
2: Yeah, I was really reflecting a lot on on that that point around mobilizing versus organizing as Marshall was sharing and trying to sort of discern whether or not I see one or the other more um, prominently in what we see here in the in the community, across the community, I actually believe that there has been significant organizing done that that appears as mobilizing um, for us around some of these issues. But um, I appreciate the point that um, the structures are still struggling to sort of take hold, right? So we have wonderful organizing efforts through great organizations that. Um, do the work that's meant to help um, create structures that can then take advantage of those mobilizing moments uh, and build power so that they can then continue on uh, past that moment of mobilization. The trick gets to be, uh, I think, that issue around power. So as Marshall states, power is built through a commitment to each other. And I have to be very honest, I think we're faced with this idea that There's not yet that true commitment to each other across our community. And um, I think if any word has been overused amongst others this last year and a half, it's been reckoning. But it's truly accurate. There is a reckoning that needs to occur for people to examine what their self-interests are versus what the, the common good is or can be for our community. And I think that we wrestle with that um, between those that work to mobilize and organize across community and those that hold power in our community. So, and so there's that dual effort going on of okay, we're trying to wrest wrestle some power away so that we can start to build more organization that is reflective of the people that um, need its service, if you will, the most.
1: So let's let's be let's make this concrete. Um, in Minneapolis, there's a um, remarkable set of elections. There's the mayoral election, which of course happens every four years, but the remarkable part is the usual control over what gets on the agenda has been punctured by the community organizing you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And this is very, most striking perhaps in the ballot um, uh, initiative uh, to uh, create a new public safety uh, system in Minneapolis. Um, it's been a remarkable campaign just to get it on the, the ballot, to get wording on the ballot, how to go to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Um, and yet we have polls showing that a majority of Blacks in Minneapolis are not in favor of reducing police. So help me understand you know, this tension you're talking about regarding um, uh, power and how it's used. Whose power? I mean, is it community organizing groups who are committed to you know this this idea and this amendment for a whole lot of reasons versus the people who live in Minneapolis and they see the outcome as threatening to their safety.
2: Yeah, I think it is about sort of like deconstructing the the structures that exist um, to provide people a semblance of safety and security, um, but it's a deeper issue around how it is that our our systems don't respond, uh, especially to BIPOC communities in ways that, um, that can make them feel that same sense of security. Um, so there's the divide there. And I think it's interesting, Larry, You Brian, I, I was just I caught last week, uh, and Nikimi uh, Levy Armstrong and DA Bullock were having a conversation, right? Um, and they are both, I think, mobilizers and organizers in our community, Um, that have been deeply, deeply invested um, in seeing systems change and address, or excuse me, provide better service and access to all communities, but especially communities of color in Minneapolis, um, where this has been brought up, they are on different sides of that ballot question, right? And one of the the constructs around their disagreement is um, this idea that the structures, and the organization wouldn't be sufficient to serve the needs of the community. Um, I I think it is, that is a critical aspect of that question that gets boiled down too often into have police, don't have police. Neither of them is saying either of those things, but that's that's what the narrative gets boiled down to, you know?
1: Well, defund the police, that language did not help that nuanced conversation. I wanna bring Marshall back in a second before I do, um, Damon, you are one of the real masters of facilitating conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion. You've done it with many different types of audiences. Um, and um, you know, I, I admire that work you do. Um, how would you uh, address the question that Marshall was raising about this um, effort to incorporate both the, um, the differences among individuals and related to power, but also obviously identity um, as well as searching for those kind of shared interests, those kind of areas of commonality that might bring people together. How How is that? How would you assess that in the Twin Cities right now? Well,
2: it's hard, I, I'll be careful not to try and assess it across the cities right now, but I will speak from what has felt effective in my work, as you described it, Larry, across a a diversity of of, of people, um, people in powerful positions and people in less powerful positions doing this work. And that's um, helping them embrace the role that identities play in our collective experience. I think people have a tendency to forget some of the identities that they bring into a space. Which in the end leads to a better understanding of commonality or common interests um, when we're only allowed to share a few aspects of it our, our position, maybe you know, our, our gender identification, um, maybe our education, um, our socioeconomic status. But there's a whole myriad of other identities that come into play. So when you get people to talk about those identities, they find more and i won't say like things that are this that are the same but they find that it's easier to build common interests um, around these bigger issues across community so that's where i often spend most of my time is trying people to get people to share of themselves first it's a humanizing way of us connecting and a necessity and it's a way that is extremely hard to do in today's day and age even though there are more ways for us to share our lives than there ever have been before in some ways, we actually don't actually spend the time to know somebody in the same way.
1: Um, Marshall, uh, thank you. Uh, Marshall, you've written and practice um, a form of community organizing that has emphasized relationships that um, those involved in a movement or organizing effort need to come to understand um, the values and narratives of uh, folks around them and you've, in a very pithy way, described this as conveying the story of self, us, and now. Um, how is that relevant to the situation we find ourselves right now?
0: Well, okay, well, the situation. Um, its, uh, it's uh, I guess the, I see the role of narrative as part of a broader picture of how we organize, uh, how we uh, to, to create change. And for me, it's grounded in relationship building. It's, it's grounded in the commitments we make to one another around what, around what kinds of values. And I'm thinking of public relationships, not intimate private relationship. I'm thinking of relationships rooted in commitment to common values or a common cause or a common purpose. Um, and then way at the other end is the action that results. But in between, there's sort of what we I think of as story, strategy, and structure. Why are we doing what we're doing? That's the narrative piece. Why am I? Why are we? Why is why do why do we perceive this current challenge as urgent, something we must respond to? Uh, what are our sources of hope, of solidarity, of self-worth to be able to? Respond with agency and not react with fear and isolation and self doubt. To me, that, that heart work uh, is critical uh, in certainly in movement building, uh, but in, in many things. We just, I would say, we just finished a session this morning uh, w- um, with uh, uh, 26 mayors uh, from different parts, well, the US and outside, learning public narrative. In other words, learning how to articulate really why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, by bringing themselves into it uh, and then trying to bring alive values that are shared, not categories that are shared, but shared experience and values. Now, that's really important. But then, so story is one part. Strategy is the next part, though, because unless it turns into how to turn resources we have into the power we need to get what we want, uh, it's not sufficient. So it's story and strategy, which is the power part, And then structure, which is how we organize ourselves to do what we're trying to do. So it's sort of to get from relationships to action, it seems story, strategy, and structure are sort of the questions we need to address. Often people become so obsessed with strategy, they forget the story part. And if they forget the story part, then the heart isn't being fed. The values aren't being nurtured. Uh, The head part, strategy is very important. But so is the hands part over here. You have wonderful strategy, but if you can't make it work, you know, it's not such a great strategy. So it's like an interdependent sort of three-legged stool. How these things relate to one another, and sometimes like the story about the what is it, the blind men and the elephant. You, you know, you get a hold of the trunk uh, and say describe the elephant. Oh, the elephant is like a, a long, you know, tubular snake or something. And somebody else gets an ear and says, oh, the elephant's like a. a that's the trouble is getting one part and then trying to define the whole by that part. Unless we are able to grasp the whole, then we can't appreciate the value of the parts. See, and that goes to these questions of diversity as well. How do we appreciate the whole within which we can honor, respect, see value in the parts uh, rather than not get, not moving to that place beyond that? I, I think that's one of the real, um, one of the real challenges, but so, yeah, the hard work really matters.
1: Amen. I, I, I know this is a part of Marshall Gans's work that you've, you've thought a lot about and, and you've used, because I've been in sessions you've run. Um, but what I'd like to ask you is do something different. Just heard Marshall. mm
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, that's actually a perfect segue for me, Larry, because what I was getting, I was all excited to share is that uh, part of that understanding of the collective story is like is the next step for me in my work as it's been applied has been the acceptance of the differences in the story and that they have meaning if that follows, right? So in the parlance of um, sort of, um, you know, work around cultural competency and, and, and in the IDI world, for those that know that tool, um, this is that the difference, there are differences and the differences matter, right? And so when we, when we talk about organizing and creating a, a sort of shared narrative, the shared narrative can't just be about, okay, look, we all agree that we want X to happen Right, so let's just get on board with it because everybody is at a different point on a continuum in terms of the power they have to offer to it. Um, maybe the 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 degree to which they have you know understanding of, of an issue or a challenge, um, their life experiences will you know will definitely impact how they can show up in certain spaces. So it's it's not it's, it's not to say Marshall's construct is simplistic because it's not. It's beautiful. It's it's straightforward. And it has nuance in each of those different categories. And one of those nuances that have made a huge difference in the work has been to take the sort of understanding of collective story and the differences that are inherent in it and accept and then begin to work on how those differences make an impact on our ability to change it.
0: You know, it's a little bit like in inter, you know, working across religious lines where, uh, you know, these days you're not supposed to talk about faith at all. Uh, We're supposed to be in this secular world. Well, I think that's problematic. Mm -hmm. The other approach is to say, well, we're really all the same. Well, no, we're not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it calls for a strong pluralism. I mean, it's sort of like Islam has deep wisdom and content and tradition. So does Christianity. So does Buddhism. So does, And it's honoring that without saying, um, well, we're all the same. No, we're not. We bring, but can we find Across these valuable differences, some common ground, yeah. some common understanding of our humanity, that enables us to respect and build on those differences rather than uh, rather than treat them as obstacles, uh, but rather as assets. And I, it's easy to say the words. It, it is hard to do in practice. Uh, and. Um, yeah, Caesar Chavez used to say, uh, uh, "Don't invite me to an ecumenical service. Uh, I'll have mass. Come to my mass. You have a seder, and I'll come to your seder. Uh, you have an iftar, and I'll come to your iftar." It's sort of yes, we respect, we honor the difference,
1: but we honor, but we honor our humanity too. I want to get to uh, some questions that have come in. Um, um, Uh, Marshall, one of the questions that came in is, how do you compare the current struggles around racial equity uh, with what you experienced in the 1960s? Well, it's hard to compare because,
0: uh, you know, I'm not the person I was in the 1960s. Well, I mean, I'm a later version, shall we say, of the same thing. Uh, And, you know, it's easy to put a gloss on history, uh, you know, and it's not. I... It's hard to compare. I think that what I'd say is this, that there are fundamental fissures uh, in our country and in its history, and race is probably the most fundamental. And and, the whole project of building, trying to create a a nation that's half slave and half free was problematic, obviously, in so many ways. So it's to be expected that, that until some form of actual equality And I'm using the word equality, not equity, because I mean equality. I mean, same access to power, you know, same access to wealth, same access to opportunity. Um, Until we get to that kind of a place, you know, uh, these fissures are going to keep reopening. And it's kind of, you know, you can look at the Civil War, you can look at, uh, at the whole struggle over Reconstruction. You can look at the whole Jim Crow fights in the late 19th century. You can then look at the Civil Rights Movement. And yeah, and, and you know, people say, well, how, there hasn't been any progress. No, there's been movement forward. I think the movement has especially been when the, the movement has challenged the system to change. In other words, it's when the change winds up being something that we all benefit from. You know, it's sort of, you know, in the scripture, they talk about, you know, that which you do for the least of these, you do for me. There's something very wise there. It's not about charity at all. It's about justice. It's about that, that, that the push, the need for change serves us all. It can, but we resist. You know, of course we resist. Who gives up power? I mean, that doesn't happen, you know? And so it it involves struggle, and it involves conflict. And conflict aversion, frankly, is one of the things I think is most problematic that we have going on, because we then deny these conflicts we have that we need to engage with and learn from and grow from. So I, I, um, it's hard to compare. I mean, I know that the the You know, SNCC just had a 60th uh, reunion uh, about a week ago, uh, you know, online in DC. We know that the fights that were fought in the 60s were important fights, and they achieved gains, and they opened up things, and they developed leadership, and they developed the generations of leadership that have to do with the following generation. But we also know that this is something, there's a song Judy Collins used to sing in the, in, from the 60s, freedom doesn't come like a bird on the wing, doesn't fall down like the summer rain, freedom, freedom is a hard one thing, you have to work for it, fight for it, day and night for it, and every generation has to win it again, pass it on to your children, brother, pass it on to your children, sister, they have to work for it, they have to fight for it, day and night for it, and every generation has to win it again, I think there's a deep truth in that, There's a deep truth in that. And it's sort of, you you get to this point in the mountain, and then you see the next mountain. You know, as long as you're fighting that first mountain, that's what you see, and you get there, and then, okay, then it goes down maybe a bit, but then you got it. But it doesn't end. You know, in the Jewish tradition, they talk about tikkun olam, repair of the world. And the premise is that the world we live in a broken world which means that we need to take responsibility for its repair. And it isn't something that could be accomplished in 10 years or even in a lifetime, but that doesn't free us from the obligation to do it. And, and I think that's kind of where this is. Um, I, I, I don't know, I hope that's helpful. I mean, yeah, this is important fight right now. Does that mean the 60s didn't matter? No, hell no. The, 60s, the
1: struggles of the 60s created a foundation. So Marshall, um, well, first of all, I want to tell you in the chat there are a lot of requests uh, for the books, and now there'll be the songs. Judy Collins is a folk <laughs> musician, um, and we're going to try to uh, scramble to get some of those titles up. Um, but you raised a very important—you uh, raised a number of important uh, points. But I have to tell you, many of my students and many of the folks that I talk to when I go out to give a uh, public talk. You know, maybe they're not the first, but eventually they'll say, "You know, thank you." But nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Nothing changes, and you've just made the comment that the work you did in the '60s mattered. Yeah. Now, there are whole there's a whole generation of folks who don't see that, don't recognize that, uh, think it's kind of a cop out, and and so I want to turn to you, Damon, because I know we've we've had a, kind of an exchange about this, about why it is that change is hard to see. Why? Cuz I look around the world and I have to tell you, I see it much like Marshall does. I see the battle in the 50s and 60s producing civil rights and and then how that is kind of transformed the nature of our struggles. i look at issues like poverty among seniors. Social security, you know, made huge gains in in tackling that. The health reform that Barack Obama and Democrats pushed through 30 million people now have insurance. And so I don't understand that idea. Nothing changes. Can you help me?
2: Oh, man, um, I don't know that I can help, uh, but I will offer this. I, you know, for me, that uh, nothing changes is, is as much about what can be seen and what can be felt. So we can see the changes that you just described. We, we can run down the statistics. We can, you know, we note those moments in history where something actually did happen, right? But as we continue to live, if we don't feel that in our every day, it can feel as if and, and make you determine nothing has changed. I can appreciate the both end of it. But part of that is because I'm, you know, I too am, you know, a lover of history, a lover of these moments, and um, recognize the, the sort of evolution of democracy, but also citizenship. However, um, when we still live in a place where, and I'm talking very hyper-local now, where we have some of the greatest disparities that exist in any other place than, uh, in, than in the country is here, um, it can be difficult to believe that anything has changed. And so I boil it down to if you can't feel it, it's hard to believe it. And um, you know, even more so you know, uh, you know, I, there is a piece of this that is um, I'm not going to call it short term memory, but there is a a hyper, hyper engagement in a moment. And when we're past the moment, sometimes we can lose sight of our engagement and why we were engaged. Um, You know, I think a lot about like my first couple of months post George Floyd's murder here in Minneapolis. We're talking about the, the racial reckoning we were going through. And I had a great conversation with uh, Dr. Yuhuru Williams over at St. Thomas about this. And we, we both kind of came to, it's not about the racial reckoning of this moment. It's about, let's see it in a year. Let's see in two years. Are people still reckoning with it in that same way? And it's because we either get exhausted and you know run out of gas for it, or the next thing takes our attention is so hard and I think this is why Marshall's work um, is so important to, it's not just building a movement, it's building a connection to something greater that doesn't, that keeps you tethered, doesn't let you get completely away from it. Um, and so I think when people can find that connection, they have a sense that things are changing, but if they don't and it's episodic, then it can feel like nothing's changing.
0: You know, it's it's interesting Just just to add to that, I mean, You know, from one perspective, everything changes all the time. I mean, what is it that does not change? Uh, Things change at different paces. A stone changes over a much longer period of time uh, than a fruit fly. Uh, But we live in a universe, in in a world that is change. Now, the question is, so what do we mean when we say nothing changes? I think your point, Damon, is a very good one, is about feeling. But, you know, uh, there's a Yiddish riddle, who discovered water? Uh, And the answer is, I don't know, but it wasn't a fish. Because we're all fish in the water of our own stories. And so, you know, you grow up as a fish in a particular water. And so you often don't notice the water until someone says, hey, over here, water. And, oh, that's interesting. I mean, this comes with the narrative work. We do a lot where you need an interlocutor, you need someone outside the box challenging you, asking you questions so that you can begin to see the box that you're in, because it's true for all of us. And it's, you know, it happens in, in all, along all kinds of lines. And, and so I think, but there's also a big plus to that because it means that um, not remaining satisfied. And see, not, not being satisfied can be a good thing because it pushes change. It pushes things forward. And and so that's not a problem. In fact, we need that to drive democracy and to drive learning, I think. So, but, you know, we don't have institutions that do the work of learning from the past so that we can act in the present to build futures with intentionality. You know, to say nothing changes means there is no hope. And if there's no hope, well, then, yeah, let's just go to whatever, uh, you know, because without hope, we can't, you know, that's why constru- building, building implies a future, Con- structure implies a future. And, you know, hope, just to say, it's not about flowers in May. Uh, it's uh, Maimonides had a definition of hope, which was that it's belief in the plausibility of the possible, as opposed to the necessity of the probable. In other words, to be a realist is to recognize it is always probable Goliath will win, but sometimes David does. Mm -hmm. It was utterly improbable. We would elect a Black man president of this country in 2007, and it happened. It's that place between fantasy and certainty where imagination, where hope, and where possibility live. And if we let go of that, then we're done.
1: Mm -hmm. Then we're done. You know, Marshall, I think you've put your finger on exactly the issue, because when I hear nothing changes. I hear no hope. And I think the argument you've made, Damon's comments point to why that is, um, that kind of fatalism plays into the very uh, structures of inequality that you've been railing against all these years. Let me shift gears a little bit. Marshall, you've been working clearly on the left for, you know, for what, 60 years now. Um, and, And clearly the tools of organizing that you've used and mastered uh, are you being used by conservatives? Uh, they're being used by religious groups that may have values different from your own. They're even being used by militias, including those who were active on January 6th. Now, all of this is not new in America. Um, James Madison, after the declaration, talked about the nightmare that was emerging in America because of the deep engagement of citizens who were taking seriously the declaration, who took seriously the the promise of equality in in a democratic society. And that was when Madison, you know, really engineered the constitution and the framework of creating filters, of creating, um, you know, elites who would refine and slash ignore some of the popular views. So my question to you is, Does it worry you to see the tools that you've been uh, developing and using all these years being used in the hands of people who fundamentally disagree with some of your values?
0: Well, not not so much. I mean, because it has to do with we're human beings uh, and much changes. But, you know, we have our fears. We have our hopes. We have our loves. We have our families we or we don't. And, and, you know, there's some pretty basic kind of stuff there. And, you know, um, and so it was basic tools, things like relationship building, storytelling, uh, strategizing. I mean, that didn't just get invented. I mean, you know, that's been around for, you know, I mean, I, you know, I love the Moses stories. I mean, I, I think of the conversation of Moses and God at the burning bush is the first time we heard about self us now. Uh, when, when God calls him and the first thing he said, hey, the wrong guy, not me. And then he says, wait a second, who are you and these people? And can't this wait? And so the negotiations begin. I guess what I'm saying is that, that a lot of the tools we work with are embedded in our humanity. We all tell stories. We all form relationships. We all strategize every time we're late for the bus. Uh, we all take action. Uh, and we all create structures with each other. So now how do we go about doing those things Uh, We have different technologies, different ways we can do it. Uh, And I think so, uh, but I guess the the other thing I I want to say, Larry, is that, you know, we have never had a representative democracy in this country. And it's getting less representative every day uh, because the divergence between who the people are and where the people are and the numbers of people is so at variance with our structures of representation, the Senate, the first by the post districts, the the whole presidential system, for that matter, that builds in profound political inequalities. Now that is a problem, and you know it's a constitutional problem. It's a deep structural problem, and when you put that in relationship to the role of money, now uh, it's uh, it,
1: it's tough. You know, so how to break through that then becomes, I think, just. But Mark Marshall, let me let me come back to what I was the intent of my question, which is in advocating for extra constitutional, outside the usual bounds of, of kind of organized politics, structural institutional politics. Yeah. Yeah. In, in arguing for that sort of engagement by citizens, don't you open the door to, you know, the kind of um, activities, the most extreme form being the militias that have been organizing in states that have been you know, engaged in the attack on, on our capital on January 6th, isn't that a dangerous path? That's
0: why we have to be better at it. That's why we have to be better at it. In other words, I think it was sort of popular in the democratic world to just let's talk about policy. You know, they're talking about, oh, those, you know, the, all that emotional talk over there. That's not what we do. We're, we're Well, you know, better learn to talk emotionally. I mean, the language of emotion is one of the fundamental languages we speak as human beings. It's a language we speak in music and drama and worship, and it's how we communicate deep meaning. Now, if we think we can just replace that with a cost-benefit analysis, we're missing the point. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, I think that sometimes those who, uh, who organize or mobilize around fear uh, as opposed to hope, Uh, who mobilize around exclusion as opposed to inclusion. See, there's a deep asymmetry here too. If you're organizing around homogeneity, we like everyone who's just like us, right? It's a different challenge than, you know what? We like everybody who's not like us. There's an asymmetry between the value of difference I think among, I have to put it in terms of, of pro-democratic people, thinkers, and those who who don't. And and so we have more work to do. It's harder, but look, you can look at Trump. I mean, Trump was mobilizing around fear. Now look at Obama's talks from 2007-8. He was mobilizing around hope. The thing is, we got to be better at the hope than the fear. We got to be better at the solidarity than the isolation. It's not so. It, it's about it's about mastering these tools of how people organize and mobilize. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I don't
1: know how to, to say it. It's, it's of I course do it. we're, 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 we're uh, coming close to the end of our wow. time together. So I wanna get a few more questions here. Uh, Damon, you've worked uh, for a number of years in the nonprofit sector. Here's a question uh, that's um, really directed at you. It seems that the structure of nonprofit organization can work against organizing for power. That is working to raise a budget to support a staff and an office can inhibit confronting powerful institutions that are sources of money for the nonprofits. Can you help us with that?
2: 100% correct. Uh, It's it's well stated. And actually, I I feel like for a long time, I sat sort of in the the belly of that beast, um, but at an interesting intersection where it was very externally facing with community and organizers. uh, Yet we were perpetrators, if you will, um, of some of those same uh, embedded structures. Uh, It is something that I I think we uh, need to grapple with really um, in a pointed way. the nonprofit structure, and I'll be honest, I think the sort of positioning orientation of nonprofits in heart um, is really necessary. Um, It provides not just service to community, but an avenue for folks in community to do some of their most meaningful work. Um, That said, uh, the model by which we go about funding Um, those efforts, uh, is at the very least problematic. I actually think Marshall did a great job of speaking to it in some ways um, in a recent article where he talked about, you know, sort of like uh, having this idea of nonprofits um, work much like private uh, wealth does, right? And um, so they are different conduit for private wealth to insert itself into some of um, these very public uh, spaces. While that's been useful because some people's orientation that have private wealth is about the greater good. So they're spending their money that way. Um, There's still the limitation of, well, what if you do something that they don't prefer in terms of how their money is spent, they can move it someplace else. It's extremely problematic. Um, But the one thing that I will say is that I feel locally, like we have gotten much better about naming it as a problem. And you know, it's sort of like all the steps, you know, that go into a recovery process. First, you've got to name that there's a problem. And then you can start to address how, how to get after it. And one of the ways that I think we've been getting after it locally is, is to, um, um, number one, to get to philanthropy a little bit and ask them to start being different about how they share money, are transparent about how it is they they allocate their resources, and then limiting the number of structural Hoops, they jump, they make people jump through to access them. Uh, and then I think that the, the interesting thing um, that actually relates to mobilization is that we are doing a better job of mobilizing uh, people to share their resources with us um, without it having to be huge contributions and only through a couple of avenues. There's lots of ways to do it now that um, I think nonprofits are tapping into and uh, will be necessary. The last thing I'll say around this Um, this idea that nonprofits really just replicate for-profit structures is accurate and is another thing that I think we'll need to address. And by that, I mean, you know, tapping into more shared leadership models, um, dispersing power within organizations in ways that replicate how communities often um, organize, I think will serve the, the nonprofit community significantly moving forward.
1: No. Marshall, you've talked about the risk of organizations placing their existence in the hands of funders rather than in the hands of well-organized constituencies. Exactly. What's, no, what's, I mean, the problem, what's the problem that you see? Well, you know, Sid Verba
0: once said the test of liberal democracy was an experiment to see whether equality of voice could balance inequality of wealth or resources. Yes. And it's not going so well. I mean, because the way as a mechanism for that balance is collective action, is organization. Now, the question is in an organization is where does the authority come from? Does it flow from members or from citizens up or does it flow from uh, the top down? Firms and NGOs are structured such that it flows from the top down. There's uh, uh, boards, donors, uh, so forth. uh, And then they... They It goes down and they serve whom they serve and they do what they do. Uh, Unions are one of the few organizations that's still there where it actually does flow from the bottom up. Now there's struggles there because you can get into oligarchic issues and so forth. But basically the power depends on the people. It depends on having an organized base among people. Now, if your power depends on what's given you as opposed to what you owe to those who chose you, it's a very different dynamic. It creates a a dependency, and this is not to say about bad people or anything, but it, it builds a dependency into the system that the inequality in wealth and all its economic and political consequences, then we have an explosion in philanthropy as a part of that explosion of wealth that then comes in and becomes the source also Theoretically, of challenging that, does that work? Uh, I think, you know, most social movements wind up capitalizing with their own labor to begin with. I mean, we didn't get salaries in the farm workers for a long time, and um, it's a big. This is a big question, but I think it comes back to the question of power:
1: who actually holds the resources from which power is built. I want to thank Marshall Ganz, who is truly a icon in the world of community organizing. Um, there are many conservatives who have read and talked about Marshall's work as well as obviously progressives. Uh, Damon Schulholm, thank you so much for joining us. Um, if you don't know Damon, you should, he is, a, he is a powerhouse in the world of nonprofits and community. Um, and if you can go to some of the works that he's doing and facilitating conversations across difference, I recommend it, I've done it, I've gained a lot from it. Uh, finally, I want to uh, thank you all for joining us. Um, it's been uh, great having you here and what a terrific conversation. Once again, thank you, Marshall Gans and Damon Shoholm. Thank you.